I just think every sermon is better when it's preceded with a contemplative music soundtrack. It's just better. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll find out here. Um, Hey, so glad you're with us today. Uh, Whether you're here in the room with us or joining us um, online, this is part three of uh, our series, our first series of 2023, um, Stones of Remembrance. If you're, uh, if you're, first time here or first time in a long time and you want to catch those first two parts um, of the series, you can find them on our website uh, at (laughs) tworivers.org. Sorry, it's not fair. Uh, You can find it at gracepointspeaker.org or YouTube channel. You could also, if you have, if you podcast, you can find those on the Apple Store or or Google Play, wherever you find those. I want to start today uh, by seeing if any of you Topekans recognize this building. It's downtown Topeka, right across, I think it's right across the street from the the old um, post office. This is Constitution Hall, right? Um, Oldest building in Topeka. It's gone through a little bit um, of a remodel over the last few years, Uh, but this is is Constitutional Hall. Um, And if you ever go to Constitutional Hall, right there on the front is a plaque it's just a, a marker that, that, that talks about uh, this is where the uh, Constitutional Convention, the Topeka Constitutional Convention happened. That's really important for those of you who are Kansan or, or Kansas history nerds. Um, it also says that this is where the state capitol um, met for, the, for about five years during the 1860s. But it's just, it's just a marker. And I know some of you love historical markers right? You read every single word on every single one on family vacation and annoy your family to death, right? Others of you could care less um, because your dad has read every single historical marker on family vacation and annoys you to death, right? But this is just a marker. It's just, this is history on a plaque, right? It shows what happened somewhere, it shows what took place um, in this building. It shows what took place on this, in this space, in this place, wherever you find um, those different markers. So I want you to travel with me about a thousand years before Jesus. And I want you to imagine that a dad is traveling along a road with his nine-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son, and they come upon a stone of remembrance, a standing stone right by the road. And the daughter looks to her dad and says, Dad, what is this here for? The dad says, well, honey, that's actually been here for a really, really long time. And she says, like, from when you were a kid? And he says, no, actually, this has been here since your grandpa was a kid. This has been here a really long time. It's actually from a, a time in our history when the prophet Samuel set this up to remind us of a moment in our history when we were completely overwhelmed by our enemies. We were completely overrun by our enemies. And God helped us. God showed up and he helped us in a real way. And this stone is just standing here today, these hundreds of years later, to remind us of when God showed up when we were overwhelmed and overrun. 
And, and I just, I, I know those two words, overwhelmed and overrun, strike a chord with some of us. Actually, they probably strike a chord with all of us. Maybe it was 10 to 20 years ago. Maybe it was 10 to 20 days ago. Maybe you woke up today feeling overwhelmed and overrun for, for whatever reason. I think there's something in this narrative for all of us but I especially think there's something here. If you find yourself today overwhelmed or overrun. So to, to give you a little more context for this story that this, uh, this, this dad is telling his nine-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son, I want you to turn, if you want to follow along, to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, that's in the Old Testament. We're going to start in chapter 4 but we're actually going to spend the majority of our time in, in chapter 7. And I want to look at this story in four separate parts, okay? I'm going to break it up into four separate parts. And the first part, we've already hinted at it, um, but we're just going to call the first part overwhelmed, okay? Um, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, you know the perennial enemies of the Israelites are the Philistines, right? Boo, right? They're the, the perennial enemies of the, uh, of the Israelites. Israelite, Israelites lived in Canaan. This is the land um, that was promised to their forefathers. And a people group started arriving. They'd been in the land for a while. And this people group started arriving from the sea, the Mediterranean, right? It's actually, the Philistines actually means the sea people. And so all of these people, this, this, this people group is arriving. And they were, they were not just warriors. They were war-hungry, and, and just to give you an idea, like there's a difference between a warrior and a farmer with a spear, right? And just to get an idea of how terrifying the Philistines were, you have to remember they're warriors, the Israelites are farmers. And even that doesn't completely do it for us because like in America, the majority of the time that we've entered a military conflict... It's been over there. Like World War I, World War II happened in the, the European or the Pacific theater. There's you know, Vietnam, there's Korea, there's Iraq, there's Afghanistan. Yes, there was a civil war, but there are very few people left that, that were around for that. So, so when we think of war, we think of it being over there. Like Topeka's never been bombed during a war. But Israel... Israel has constantly been in, 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 in a war or at war for most of their history. And it's not a very big country. 90 miles from north to south, 40 miles from east to west. It's about the size of New Jersey. And at this point in their history, um, Israel has never been occupied. They had been raided by the Midianites. The Midianites would come in, they'd steal their cattle, and they'd, they'd run off. But they left. The Philistines aren't leaving. They're, they're setting up camp. So they could live four miles from your farm. They could live 10 miles from your house, 15 miles from your village. And if they decide to attack, what's going to happen to your farm? What's going to happen to your village? What's going to happen to your daughter? What's going to happen to your husband? That the Philistines are terrifying. And you say, well, the Israelites are God's chosen people, so God's on their side. He protects them, right? 
didn't always work like that. And, and the reason it didn't always work like that was because God had a very specific agreement with him. He had a covenant with Israel that went like this. If you deny me, if you ignore me, if you go after other gods, you made your decision and you're kind of on your own. And at this point in the history of Israel, they're on their own. There's a guy named Eli. He's the high priest in Israel. He's kind of the leader of Israel, but his two sons are actually the ones who have a little bit more sway. His sons are Hophni and Phinehas. The first few chapters or the first few verses of 1 Samuel label them scoundrels. These are not good guys. Okay, they're rotten through and through. Um, if you were with us in our fall series last fall through the book of Judges, you remember this phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what's happening in the first few chapters of First Samuel. When the Philistines attack, God is not with them because they are not with God. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but but. God loves you no matter where you've been or what you've done. That is true. But there's a difference between unconditional love and unconditional blessing. God loves you no matter what is different than God will bless you no matter what. We'll talk about that more next week. So these are not good days. They're not good days for Israel. And suddenly word starts to spread that the Philistines are coming. People start to panic and they come up with an idea. They go to the tabernacle and they, they pick this thing up. Not this thing specifically, but something that looked like this thing. This is the Ark of the Covenant. They went into the Holy of Holies and got the Ark of the Covenant, Hophni and Phinehas, carry it into battle thinking God is on our side and we got the hardware to prove it. Right Now, I know it's wading into the deep end of the, the theological pool, but just to expand our biblical research here, I want us to go back about 40 years to this beautiful thing. Okay? Dr. Indiana Jones comes across a thick, leather-bound book with a picture of the Ark of the Covenant being carried by priests. And this is the picture that he sees. Priest carrying the ark, laser beams coming from the ark of the covenant, light emanating, right? And, and they discuss what it is. They talk about what it is. And Dr. Indiana Jones sidekick Marcus speaks up and says, an army that carries the ark before it is invincible. This is what Hophni and Phinehas believed. We're invincible. We have the very presence the very glory of God with us. But the ark does not protect them. They're actually decimated. Um, I mean, husbands, uncles, sons, dads, older brothers, tens of thousands of them die at the hand of the Philistines. Eli's really, really old. He's 98 years old. He's blind. He's sitting by the city gate, just petrified, waiting for the ark to come back because his sons took it into battle. Suddenly he, he hears a shriek throughout the village that grows into a wail and he's blind. So he says, what's going on? And a runner from the battle comes and says, we have been completely over." 
run, your sons are dead, and the ark has been captured. Eli falls backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. His daughter-in-law hears that her husband is dead, her father-in-law is dead, the ark has been captured, and goes into premature labor. Um, She will actually die in labor, but before she dies, she gives her name, or she gives her son a name. Look at 1 Samuel 4.21. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Apologies to those of you who are alumni from Washburn University. (laughs) But that's what Ichabod means. The glory has departed. The ark is the presence. It's the representation of the very presence, the glory of God in their midst. And it's in enemy hands. It's gone. So this dad with his nine-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son stands next to this stone of remembrance and says, in the days when your grandpa was a boy, we were overwhelmed and we were overrun. And perhaps you showed up today feeling overwhelmed and overrun. We need to pause here and just make a distinction because sometimes overwhelming things happen And the blame justifiably falls on us. Like in the case of the Israelites, that's what happened. They're not thinking clearly. All they had to do was look at their recent history and realize that God didn't protect them when they disobeyed, when when, when they ignored him. It's like they should have seen this coming. Do you ever think that about people in your life? They should have seen this coming. The Israelites experience the absence of the blessing of God. I think they actually experience the discipline. But, but there are also times where we're overwhelmed because of something outside of our control. It's like nothing we've done. It's something that's happened to us or it's, something be, it's a decision that somebody made around us. And if you find yourself there, please do not hear this today as God is punishing me and I need to find out why. Sometimes we're to blame. Sometimes we're partly to blame. And sometimes we're just not. But regardless of how we get there, regardless of what happens around us to create chaos, every time we're overwhelmed is an opportunity for us to soften our hearts and turn to the Lord. This is the the second part of the story. We'll just call it the turn. Um, If you read the um, fifth and sixth chapter of 1 Samuel, you will see what can only be described as miraculous events that get the ark back into the hands of Israel. Um, And then we read in 1 Samuel 7, 2, then all the people of Israel, what? Turned. All the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Out of the chaos, out of the confusion, out of the desperation, it's like their hearts are softened and they turn back to the Lord. Now, this is, um, this is what sometimes I think of as, you know, scriptural sitcom. It's like, okay, the tension is built, the problem happens, and then it's resolved within a couple chapters. It's like a sitcom, Right? But that's not exactly how it worked. That's how we read it. 
But that's not exactly how it worked. When we feel overwhelmed and overrun, our hearts become hard. When we feel overwhelmed and overrun, our minds can be numb. Sometimes when we feel overwhelmed and overrun, we self-medicate. And, and sometimes that takes a while to get through. Sometimes that takes more than just a few chapters. This is not a sitcom. It's not easy. It's not automatic. But they do soften and they do turn to the Lord, which means they lived happily ever after. Right? Not so much. Because their turn is more like a half turn. Um, Eli is dead now. The leader in Israel is now Samuel, the prophet, and Samuel is, is revered. He's a wise leader. He's an aged leader. He's trusted throughout Israel. And when, when Samuel showed up in your village, it was like hearing directly from God. And Samuel goes from village to village because he has a message for the people of Israel from God. Here it is. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the, here's a weird word, Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It's, it's a great message. It's a good message. It's a hopeful message. But his message has two points. Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and commit yourselves to the Lord wholeheartedly. Rid yourselves, commit yourselves. Rid yourselves, commit yourselves. I showed you, uh, we talked about last week, and I showed you last week the pocket-sized Baal. Remember Baal? Okay. Baal is the god of fertility in Canaan. Um, if, you wanted, if you wanted rain for your crops, if you wanted a bumper crop, you would pray to Baal. You would go to his shrine. Baal had a girlfriend. He was the god of fertility. She was the goddess of fertility. Anybody want to guess what her name is? Ashtoreth. They're the king and queen of fertility. And generations, remember, generations before Samuel was even born, God rescues the Israelites from Egypt. They're given the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, no other gods. The, the, the creator of all things, their, their savior, their rescuer says to them, I want to be your one and only. It's going to work better for you if I'm your one and only. And, and, and what I really want you to see in Samuel's message is this two parts of returning to the Lord. There's a turning to, but there's also a turning from. I think that's really important. If someone came to me and said, Tim, I just need to tell you, like over the last couple of weeks, I've turned to Jesus. I would say, awesome. I got a question for you. What are you turning from? What are you turning from? Because turning to Jesus is great, but turning to Jesus means you're turning from something else. A full turn is a turning to and a turning from. When you turn to Jesus and his rescue, you are turning from the delusion of that you don't need rescue or the delusion that you can self-rescue. When you're turning to you're turning from, turning to a life of servanthood as Jesus taught is more than likely turning from the need to always be served. There's a turning to and a turning from. Turning to God in gratitude, just this constant, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, 
is more than likely a turn from complaint. A a turning to forgiveness as Jesus taught is more than likely a turning from the desire to always hang on to the hurt. There's a turning to and a turning from. So maybe a good question for those of us who are followers of Jesus to ask ourselves regularly, what am I turning from these days? What am I turning from? Because it's not a one-time deal. You don't turn to Jesus and then never struggle with idolatry anymore. What are you turning from? If there's a turning to, there's a turning from. Something's got to go. Some things have to go. What am I turning from these days? Can I get a little bit more specific? Why, yes, you can, Pastor Tim. What relationship needs to be ended? What, what phone number needs deleted from your phone? What, what habit just needs to cease? What website needs blocked? And you know what? It might be Amazon or VRBO right? Because if you're constantly looking for the next thing to fill your heart, if you're constantly looking for the next escape, the thing to to bring you joy or the thing to get you out of the thing that's not joy, that might be just about as unhealthy as a sexual obsession. What are you turning from these days? Samuel just goes, he goes from town to town. You're turning to the Lord. Awesome. What are you turning from? If, if you are indeed turning to the Lord, then get rid of all the pocket-sized gods and goddesses that have your heart. Turning to, turning from, and the people's hearts, are, again, are so softened by the devastation that they faced, they begin to respond. Verse 4, so the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord Only, they said, we want him to be our one and only instead of having half of our heart, instead of having a percentage of our heart, instead of having our heart on Sunday morning. He can have it all. He can have us wholeheartedly. And this starts just like this little ripple. It transitions into a wave, eventually becoming a tsunami that just sweeps through all of Israel. And Samuel says, okay, I love what's happening, but we need to make this official. Calls a family meeting. Let's gather together at Mizpah. And this is where we enter the third part of the story. We'll just call this part the outpouring. The outpouring. Samuel says, meet me at Mizpah. We've got some business to do. We've got some business to do. Here's verse 6. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted. And there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. No concession stands. No corn dogs and cotton candy. They're fasting, right? They're, they're refraining and they're confessing. They're pouring out their hearts to the Lord. I think that's where the water comes in. It's just a representation of what, what, what they want their hearts to look like. So they pour out this water on the ground. We've, we've relied on other gods. We've prayed to these little bales who have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have hands, but they surely can't answer our prayers. 
We were wrong, we're sorry, forgive us. We were wrong, we're sorry, forgive us. This, this, this outpouring of their hearts, they poured out their hearts to the Lord that day because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we owe God an apology. Sometimes, an, another question to ask ourselves regularly, when was the last time you poured out your heart to God? And, and not here in this space, that's great. But when was the last time you just got before the Lord and said, God, you are so good to me. You've given me so much. You've blessed me. You've sent Jesus to willingly die for me. And I have the capacity to forget you for days at a time. I have not loved as you have loved me. I have not forgiven as you've forgiven me. I'm sorry I was wrong. Forgive me, renew me, because sometimes we just owe God an apology. That's what happened at Mizpah. It was an outpouring of confession. But it was also a place where they panicked. They panicked. While they're out pouring out their hearts to the Lord, word begins to sweep through this gathering. The Philistines are coming and they're armed. They know exactly where we are and they're headed straight towards us. They're, they're in confession formation, not battle formation. And remember, warriors, farmers with spears. And so they're a little freaked out. And they actually tell, if you, read, if you read the text, they actually tell Samuel, don't stop interceding for us. You keep doing your thing. We'll take care of the Philistines, or at least they think they will. And, and do, you ever read, do you ever read different parts of, of the Bible? And you're like, I wish I had more than what I have here. Like, can I have some more detail? This is one of those times when I, I wish we had more detail, but we have one verse. We have one verse. That day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. And, and you get the thinking back then was not, you know, America versus Russia. It was not your army versus my army. The gods were involved, right? So the Philistines are moving towards an unarmed, surprised bunch of farmers. And suddenly... Thunder and lightning start to strike all around them. The Philistines assume the God that sent the plagues on Egypt is sending a plague on them. And they turn and they sprint home and an army that is sprinting away from you is pretty easy to defeat. And again, word of this spreads. Hey, your uncles, your sons, your brothers, your dads, your husbands, they're all alive. The Lord helped you. The Lord helped us, which is part four of the story, the stone of remembrance. This is when Samuel set up the stone that the dad is talking to his son and daughter about. Here's verse 12. He, Samuel, named it, the stone, Ebenezer, saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. Um, there's a song that we sing around here from time to time. Come thou fount, it's an oldie but a goodie. And it's got a line in that song that says, here I raise my Ebenezer. From now on, you'll know what that means. It's a stone of help. 
It's something to commemorate. This is when God showed up. This is where God showed up in that moment, that decision, that season, that relationship, when it was nothing but chaos and there was no way out. And he helped me. I, I think it's just, and I don't do this well. We don't do this well. I think it's just important to mark those spots because remembering God's faithfulness in the past helps us trust him in the future. We, we, sing, we sing these songs all the time about God's past faithfulness to carry us into the future. So it was that moment, it was that season in your life when you were able to acclimate to a new city. I haven't moved to a new city for 22 years or 20 years. I don't know what that's like. Many of you know what that's like. God helped you acclimate to a new city, a new school, a new job, a new role with your job. You could set up an Ebenezer to remind you that's when God helped me. Um, maybe you experienced the Lord's help in navigating a lengthy, difficult unemployment. Maybe the Lord helped you navigate a lengthy, difficult virus. Thus far, the Lord has helped us remember his faithfulness in the past to trust him with the future. He, he sent you not one, but two really good friends at work to help you maintain your sanity. That's how the Lord helped you through those friendships. Maybe he provided a small group, a support group, a recovery group, a grief share group. Maybe he provided you a church that provided you community and a regular reason for joy. You can say, thus far the Lord has helped me. Mark that spot, mark that season, mark that moment because remembering how he's faithful in the past helps you trust him in the future. Some of you, you had every reason to believe your marriage was down for the count. And by God's good and gracious hand, he renewed it. Thus far, the Lord has helped you. Or the marriage you worked for and fought for and wept over went down for the count. It, it was a divorce you didn't want. It's a divorce you don't want. But the Lord has provided you with daily grace not to embitter your heart and in turn poison the rest of the relationships around you. Thus far, the Lord has helped me. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost a spouse. Some of you have buried a parent or two. Some of you have buried a sibling. And God gave you enough daily grace to get up every single day and just function. Just put one foot in front of the other. Thus far, the Lord has helped you. Remembering how he was faithful then helps you to trust him for tomorrow. So this dad, he stands beside this stone and he tells his nine-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son, kids, they were totally overwhelmed, totally overrun, Ichabod. The glory departed from Israel. But then they turned to the Lord. They turned to the Lord. They poured out their hearts to him. He met them there. He restored them. He renewed them. He helped them. Ebenezer. He takes his kids all the way from Ichabod 
to Ebenezer on the side of the road. And this is my hope for you. This is my, my, my prayer for you that if or when you find yourself, for whatever reason, overwhelmed and overrun, that you would turn to him. That you would turn to and you would turn from all of those things that you've relied on that you'd pour out your heart, that you would watch as he renews, as he restores, as he reignites something in you, that you, like Israel, would be able to move from Ichabod to Ebenezer. This is the stone of remembrance, that God is, in fact, still in the business of moving his people from a place where it feels like he's completely abandoned them to a place where, no, actually he shows up and he helps. And there's a lot of things that happen in between. It's not a sitcom, but it is how God works. So next week, um, we'll end the series with one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, I get to geek out this week. It's going to be so much fun, okay? We're going to look at the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, and it's just, it's just a great way to end this series as we continue to think about what it looks like to set up these stones, to set up these places, these, these markers in our own individual lives, in our own family's life, and, and, and even in our church's life. What does it look like? For us to set those things up. So let me pray for you and then we'll get out of here. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. These, these narratives, these stories from thousands of years ago. And God, some of us, we read this and it, we just, we just, we, it's true. We know it's true. We believe it's true. God, for some of us, we struggle with it. We, we wonder about it. But God, regardless of, of, of where we find ourselves on that spectrum, regardless of where we find ourselves on the, on the spectrum of feeling overwhelmed and overrun today, God, my prayer is simply that we, our, 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 our hearts would be soft enough and open enough to hear from you, to receive what you have for us, and then to leave this place and to obey. God, for some of us, that means we need to turn to you, maybe for the first time. For some of us, there's some things that we need to turn from, whatever those are. Spirit, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal them to us and then give us the courage to obey, the wisdom, the insight to obey. And I ask this, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>